situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hello and welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines on the Soft Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley. With me this week, Joe Quinn. Hello, everybody. And Lan Martin. Hi, everyone. Okay, so on this week's show, we're going to we're going to take a good look, I think, at one particular situation developing in Southeast Asia. The plight of the so-called Rohingya people mm. in Bangladesh and Burma. Mm. This situation is interesting for a number of reasons. It's obviously developing. It's not a major conflict zone yet, but it's certainly looking like the development of what could be another one, like Syria or somewhere else. So we're going to be asking, Joe here has been reading a lot about this week, for his take on it. We're also going to talk a bit about, well, <laughs> I'm not sure what it is to say. I was going to say about Trump. I mean, we've talked a lot about Trump, of course, since he came out of nowhere to incredibly win the U.S. election. Um, we found ourselves talking and talking about it and wondering where it would go. But, you know, I think... At this point, it's kind of the closing chapter of of what of what appeared to be an, an incredible event where a amount of the people in quotes had potentially changed shaken things up in the u s of a but it's the end of a beautiful relationship you know what you know what it reminds me of seeing this. This week, this positive press coverage of Trump for the first time, um, it's a bit like well, the realization I had when the the Greek debt crisis in 2015 happened. Um, Syriza was elected, and that was revolutionary mm-hmm. for Europe. In this case, it was a radical left party, first time one would actually come into power in any European government um, ever. Uh, at least since World War Two, and then the incredible standoff between tiny Greece and Brussels and Germany, and behind them, you know, the global so-called deep state of the, the banking cartel, and uh, they put up a good fight, and that was it. It came to an end seven months later in July, early August, mm-hmm. 2015, and. At which point they were contained. I mean, Ceres remained in power. No one, there wasn't any war that broke out. No one had to get assassinated. There were no sanctions imposed on Greece per se, although Greece was throttled economically, which is effectively the same thing. Um, but it, it brought a kind of tragic end to what had seemed, at least for me when I was when I was watching it, a hopeful turn of events. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we talked about it at the time and 
I think Joe reframed that by saying, you know, well, it got me to rethink, reconsider my thinking on it, but by suggesting that it's not so much that this was ever going to be a hopeful kind of success mm. politically or economically for Greeks and therefore for anyone else. The point of such an episode, of such a window of a six-month window of time on seeing that play out was there was an opportunity for Greeks and for all of us, for anyone watching, mm. to get a glimpse of how the world actually works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, well, that's... I mean, that was just my, my, I think, a fairly self-evident uh, conclusion as to uh, what the point was. Not that someone had intended it that way, obviously, uh, but that rather the lesson to be learned from that episode. Um, if you take that approach, that's all about, I suppose, your perspective. But if your perspective is that as things happen in the world and everybody who's watching it uh, are in the position of the ob- an observer to to, well, to learn from it, what else are you going to do? You're going to you should learn as much as you can from what's going on and reframe your reframe your perspective as a result of, of what happens. And yeah, that was um, seemed to be the the most important lesson. Uh, certainly, if in the context that uh, are based on the theory that there is a kind of kind of broad, overarching kind of one world government type thing to some extent, some kind of a a, a power behind the scenes. Um, Either you know within major countries or uh, globally, that says one thing and does another. That proposes presents itself as having, or themselves as having one set of beliefs or one set of values, but in reality have another, uh, more nefarious. So they present themselves as having positive values, let's say, to the people, and then but behind the scenes they have a nefarious agenda. Now that's basically the, the concept of. Uh, that's, that's a kind of the broad overarching conspiracy theory, right, of this world that kind of touches on everything. The idea that what you see is not what you get. Politicians, the, the rulers, the power brokers, the overt power brokers in this world uh, are hiding something from the public. That mm-hmm. There's a disconnect between uh, the leaders and the people in the sense of what their agenda is. And that's mm-hmm. uh, part of basic a definition of the, that general conspiracy theory that pervades, as you said, a lot of things as you can get. So, in the case of Greece, what you had was, I mean, it was a good opportunity. I mean, leaving aside Syriza and what the, the people get caught up in the in the politics of it and stuff, and, uh, you know, they would say, well, Syriza were a bunch of, like, radical left-wing almost commies, you know what I mean, who were gonna, like, probably going to ruin Greece, they were, right? They were called such. Right. And kind of correctly, because there were some in... Right, there were. Because what it meant was far-left right. uh, syndicate or groupings right. of different types, and some were, like, right. we want Marxist communism, right. you know? So they're far-left, and you can argue till the cows come home that, you know, that's a bad idea, it's, you know, communism slash socialism in, in any kind of extreme form. It's, it's just unworkable in any country. So you can just say, well, they... You could look at it and say, well, therefore, the the European powers who kind of put the kibosh on, on Syriza and their agenda were working in the interest of the people of Greece because, you know, they have, they have to stop these kind of radical left-wing ideologies from taking hold because history shows that they will uh, destroy a country, destroy it economically and 
and politically. Um, so you could say that, well, so there's no evidence there of... of uh, Malfeasance. Right, of a nefarious agenda. But those kind of events, I think, are more important as a gateway into, you know, at least giving people the chance to accept the idea that, at least the basic idea that leaders respect the will of the people. You know, that's the first step that you have to, to go to, if, if you know what I mean. You can't, that people shouldn't effectively put their trust or their faith in leaders because, or at least on, on the basis that their leaders uh, respect them and will do what, what they want effectively. Uh, because obviously in, in Greece, uh, you had a vote. Uh, you had Syriza who won power, came to power, and they were voting to leave Europe, right? Weren't they? That was part no, of, that, was part, that was in the background. It was in the background, but the original, never their explicit goal. No, but the original Oki vote, yes. Of the referendum then in midsummer. Was, that, to, that, 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 was to reject. It was to re- reject um, a the, deal whereby they would enter a second bailout. Right. The, another period. bailout, right. So they it, wanted it seems, to declare bankruptcy. Right. Yeah. And they wouldn't have been allowed to. Their, their mandate seemed to be to renegotiate um, the whole austerity um, agreement with uh, right. yeah. the ECU it, yeah. and the IMF, I think. And right. uh, that, yes. that was the one pressing issue. Uh, for six months, we were hearing stories about um, Varoufakis, who was, I think, the minister of the economy or finance, going mm-hmm. head-to-head with, with uh, Wolfie Schnabel of Germany, uh, mm-hmm. This kind of like arch uh, financier, banker type who was basically, you know, every time Varoufakis was making a reasonable uh, request uh, to help really restructure uh, the the loans, uh, Shabel would come back at him with, uh, no, you, Greece has to learn its lesson as though the entire uh, population of Greece should be punished for the malfeasance mm-hmm. and, and negligence of, of, of the elite in Greece. And, the curious uh, thing is, mm-hmm. um, I, I've read um, a kind of a summation of these events written by Varoufakis, and he has Schauble agreeing with him in private every step of the way. Mm-hmm. And then they turn up at the press conference and he would say the opposite mm-hmm. because in the end, Schauble himself even when he sees the reasonable, reasonableness of whatever solution you put forward for a problem, mm-hmm. he is wittingly or un- unwittingly, largely wittingly, but he'll have his own sound good reasons for it, beholden to the same powers and principalities mm-hmm. that we all are. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, the, 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 the politics of it, I mean, if I, I'm just kind of remembering now, the, the situation was that... Uh, you know they were they were being offered a bailout and and terms of uh terms of the bailout that really kind of eviscerated the Greek economy and and uh, led to a lot of um privatization of companies where foreign companies would come in privatization of resources in Greece where foreign companies would come in and uh, snap up uh, Greek uh, infrastructure and and, and um, ports and airports and all that kind of stuff and that this was you know this was a bad thing from the point of view of the Greek people that uh, they were doing they were having a better time with these places being nationalized effectively uh, and that the Greek people I think were generally aware that that they, that they did not want they were they prefer for 
the large number of state workers in in, uh, in Greece to remain as state workers, i.e. be paid by the state, so that it would remain under the control of uh, the Greek government effectively, and the Greek people then would have uh, a way to petition effectively, uh, if they, or, or a way to affect change in their own living conditions, in their own working conditions, but if it was, if a lot of the state companies remain state companies, but this uh, IMF uh, bailout deal involved a lot of um, selling off of state uh, state um, utilities to foreign companies, and then all these people who are employed by those would suddenly now be uh, employees of foreign companies. Well, it, it wasn't even that political. The, the issue of privatization wasn't even that no one really cared. So the, the point was they weren't getting a salary at all. Right. 80% youth unemployment. 80% of people dropped out of the tax system altogether. Right, because of the punitive. Because there's no, yeah, because everything was cut. Investors had fled. Mm. There's no money. They're, they're, they'll take whatever you can give them. Um, right, but that, thing, that gets into the whole reason for the for the banking collapse and, and why it all happened in the first place and who's to blame, right? Right. Uh, so... I mean, that's a bit of a, a complicated issue. Um, but I think, the, getting back to the point, the point, I think, was that you had the will of the people in Greece yeah. was uh, expressed. No quite, more quite clarity. Clear. No more clarity. Uh, and it was rejected. So, basically, it wasn't necessarily about Syriza, whatever. It was about the people basically saying, you know, the people voted for Syriza, but what they actually wanted was no more austerity, no more... Uh, cuts in, in pensions and basically screwing over uh, the Greek people. Um, and whatever way they had, whatever they had to do get out, to get out of that, they wanted to do it, you know. But of course, the EU was saying, no, well, you owe a lot of money, you owe us money, you can't just walk away from it, you can't, you cannot. And that's when the, the specter of Brexit came up, or sorry, Grexit came up, Greek leaving the EU, well, listen, we'll just walk away from this debt. And uh, and then the threats were, well, no, you're not going to do that because if you do that, then you're going to be in a far worse condition than you are. And there'll be basically an economic war will be waged against you by us. So a lot of threats in that sense. The whole point of it being that I suppose that the, these power brokers in the EU made it pretty clear that they did not care about the welfare of the ordinary people. And they realized, mm-hmm. and of course, austerity, austerity implies that, right? Uh, that has occurred in different countries in, in Europe. Uh, it implies that, that people will have to be made to suffer to... In, you know, in the interest of paying back what they didn't lose in the first place, or as far as they're concerned, didn't lose. So it's hard to find the person responsible. Who lost all this money? You know, who put us in this position? But the bottom line, I think, is that it made it clear that uh, these people were not interested in democracy. The will of the people was, it was kind of like a, a 1973 Chile-Allende-Kissinger moment, you know, where Kissinger basically and the, and the U.S. Over, and the CIA overthrew Allende, and um, Kissinger made the remark that uh, about when he was asked about, you know, democratic voice of the people in Chile and stuff, he said, well, these issues are far too important to allow the ordinary people to decide. <laughs> but in fact, the, 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 the issues that he's referring to were issues that were, there was nobody that those issues were closer to than the ordinary people of Chile. But so the ordinary people of any country are not uh, allowed or not to be trusted with making decisions about their own welfare, basically is the, is the point that uh, I think came out of this thing, out of things like Greece. There were opportunities to see the whole idea of democracy and the will of the people and what you think it's, well, you're allowed to think certain things as long as, as it's within certain confines. If you start saying things that don't fit with um, the kind of power structure or the hierarchy, whatever, as it is, then um, they're, they're null and void, basically. Uh, well, so it, gives, it, it, it exposed the, uh, the falseness of, uh, of the whole concept of democracy when it comes down to it, you know. 
And the problem with that is that so many people believe in the idea of democracy. They believe that when they elect their leaders, that their leaders are going to do this, what they want them to do, you know. Uh, and we still, I, I think, I mean, go ahead. I just wanted to say, I think part of the issue there also is that Varoufakis and um, who was the head of Syriza? I forget his name already. Alexis Tsipras. Uh, Tsipras, Tsipras. Yes, thank you. Uh, you know, I think that these guys thought that they would go in there and negotiate with with Shabal in good faith, that they had all of these good, reasonable uh, arguments for helping Greece to get on its feet and and do and the right thing. And, they did, and yeah. To start, and to start growing. And it was basically rejected. And, and it was kind of, it wasn't only rejected, it was like, uh, they were they were kind of pub- publicly eviscerated for for even deigning to uh, try and negotiate anything reasonable. Yeah. Um, so I, I think these guys were were sincere. Uh, I don't. I I think that they were um, they were probably themselves uh, taken off um, off a, 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 their sure footing that they could possibly make a change. And uh, I you know it's. I think actually it's a very good analogy to what uh, we're seeing here in the U.S. with Trump thinking that he had any kind of power once elected to be president to affect any kind of uh, meaningful change. Uh, and and um, I don't know well, if we want to move in that that's direction. That's something that 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 that's mm-hmm. something that could be debated. You know, what could he have done differently? You know, what what did he really know coming into it? What did he only learn as a result? That's something, you know, that that could be discussed. But um, the short of it is probably that while he was no greenhorn, mm-hmm. he was naive about certain things. And he said so himself. There was an article back in March, I think, an article, a statement from him picked up by the press. Um, he said, uh, wow, government is a lot harder than I thought it would be, yeah. which says it all, really. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he's under pressure and stress, but how things actually work, he's learning as he goes along, you know. So, yeah, th- there's probably some room for debate. Maybe is this the thing with Trump, right? This is the it's this the thing that's been lauded in some quarters and obviously mocked in others is that he's a businessman, right? So <clears throat> he's coming into a deal. He's written his book, The Art of the Deal. So you come in, you aim high, you verbally kick China in the teeth and you see what happens <laughs> mm. and then you come back and you meet them at the table and mm. you're super nice and you have cake and mm. everything's cool yeah. and, you, and, and you meet on the middle ground which takes you exactly where you thought you, you might end up going yeah but it's, it's a bit more complex hopelessly in, uh, <laughs> in, in in this situation when you're dealing with the kind of levels of intelligence and cunning yeah in, in circles of power. Uh, it's just shocking to think that he that he wasn't aware of, or more aware of, you know, what how America really works. I mean, there's so much evidence, but it suggests that he wasn't paying attention a lot, like the people who, you know, all of the people in America in general, and a lot of the people who, who voted for him just, you know, haven't been paying attention. They've been living in a in a dream world, you know, living the American dream, uh, which is not so much living any kind of lifestyle you know, high on the hog or anything like that. It's rather, it just means that you're living in a dream world. That's what living the American dream for a lot of people means. It just means you're you're totally disconnected from reality. Uh, you're living in your own head, your own little bubble, you know. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to look back now, taking this as a kind of end point of Trump's 
it's not the end of point of his presidency, obviously, what, it's like eight months. Um, he's got another three plus, three and some years to go. <laughs> and God knows what's going to happen. I mean, I just, I, I, I can't imagine. Maybe, maybe it's back to, back to the usual uh, for, for, for American uh, domestic and foreign policy. So we may basically imagine what would happen if, uh, you know, if Hillary was, was elected president, that that's what's going to happen over the next three years, basically. I don't know. Uh, I don't think so, because I don't think, I think Trump still is always going to have some influence and in, just in the sense of his, his persona and his own attitude. Obviously, he's not completely neutered in the sense that uh, he can't be relied on to get up there necessarily and start, uh, you know, rabble-rousing and warmongering against Russia and stuff, as we suspect uh, Hillary uh, would, was, is likely to have done, you know. I, don't, I think his own, the fact that he's, uh, you know, he's, he's well-intentioned if naive, he's well-intentioned, means that that's going to put some brakes on on the rest of his term in terms of what, what can be done or what the deep state would like him to do, you know. I'm not sure he'd be a, a complete puppet in that sense, but <clears throat> um, but it's just interesting to look back now on on these seven or eight months of his presidency and, and see uh, and think about what exactly was their problem with Trump. You know, you're talking generalities, but what was the real problem with Trump, you know? Um, because well, the only thing that we've, the only thing we have, um, officially from the public's perspective with Trump is that, you know, he's racist and um, he's sexist and he's got orange hair, an orange face, and yellow hair, and well, that's it, you know. But I don't think the deep state is too concerned about those things because you know he's obviously not a racist. He's sexist. Well, big deal. That's, I don't think the deep state minds about sexism either. It has no real bearing on, on actual government, domestic and foreign policy, really. Because, you know, it's not like he's some kind of KKK member or something along those lines, although he's been accused of that. So the things that, that if you look back and you ask the average person why Trump, why Trump's first eight months has been so bad, you'd say, well, because you'd name those things that he's just he's not a nice person, he's a sexist, arrogant, blah, 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 blah. But we're not we're t- we're not talking about him being neutered effectively or castrated, if you want, by uh, the people. It's it's by these figures behind the scenes who didn't like him. And so, what is their problem with him? What what did they fear that he might do? I think they actually feared his naivety, in a certain sense. They feared that he would use this art of the art of the deal, <laughs> his book, to 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 engage in international affairs type of thing and that he would be mm. he would be kind of nailed to the wall basically by much more savvy international players like in Russia and China and stuff, you know, in other countries. But he's just too much of a noob, you know. Um, but at the same time, they also probably feared the fact that he was kind of well-intentioned and that he's not a warmonger. Mm-hmm. And these people, these people in the deep state who have been running America for a long time have this kind of schizoidal belief that, you know, uh, you better do it to them first before they do it to you because they are going to do it to you. That's their attitude. Their attitude to life in the whole world has always been a very, very belligerent because they're, they're paranoid in a pathological way that uh, if they don't get in first, somebody else will. It's dog-eat-dog, basically, across the board for them. And I suppose they didn't like the fact that Trump probably didn't take that approach, doesn't have that perspective on life. Um, 
and that America would he would damage America, quote unquote, in that sense. Well, he probably would have done a lot of good for America if he, he probably because I mean I can imagine someone like Trump as naive as he is. Uh, I can imagine that uh, he could have actually done a lot of a lot of good uh, in terms of international relations with Russia and China. They may have seen him as naive and stuff, but he's not that naive in the sense of he's not stupid, right? He's not a stupid guy. Um, but he would have picked things up pretty quickly, and he could have actually established better relationships, better relations with uh, Russia and China, and, and even you know other countries. Um, and you know he may, he may have been able to achieve a lot of or some of what he tried to achieve in terms of uh, uh, improving a lot of the average American in terms of bringing jobs back to America, and you know not wasting so much money necessarily on the. I think one of the big fears they had was that the deep state had was that he was going to. Uh, scale back the kind of military-industrial complex aspect of it, where vast amounts of taxpayers' money uh, go to uh, into war, which really means that they go into private, the, the, the pockets of, of uh, defence contractors and multi-billionaires, uh, siphoning off the wealth of America. And I think Trump at least was aware of that and saw a lot of, as he, I think he said it more than once, about the kind of wasteful, the wastefulness of the US military. You know? um, those people want that to continue on. They want to keep America on a war footing. They want to send vast amounts of money towards the to the to the military industrial complex because, well, it's a it's a it's easy money, you know. Um, so those that's the things I can think of that really they didn't like about him. They're fairly basic, you know. Not too there weren't too uh, there wasn't much intrigue in it, and it's fairly fairly understandable, I suppose, from that perspective that they would be annoyed or or, uh, or not like him. For that yeah well we we had an article uh back in march of 2016 um early on in the election uh and it was called trump will make his peace with the war party just as reagan learned to love big government and basically what the the blogger dan sanchez was saying was that um ronald reagan in 1980 when he ran against jimmy carter uh had also kind of garnered all of this populist appeal um, and was going to make America great again. He had a different expression. It's it's good morning, America, or it's morning in America again. And um, as he goes on to say, uh, Reagan had um, slowly but surely been uh, co-opted uh, into the more kind of uh, militaristic um, thinking of Washington, uh, and he was hated by Washington. He he actually spoke out uh, against the Trilateral Commission, uh, one of these non-governmental groups that wields a lot of power. Um, I think at one point, uh, George Bush Sr. had to distance himself from the Bilderbergers or something during the campaign uh, because this uh, this perception of being uh, too powerful and not acting in America's interests uh, was what George Bush was uh, aligned with. But um, Sanchez has a, a couple of really interesting things to say that are very in line with what you just mentioned, Joe, about the, the business of war in the U.S. Uh, he says, whatever his personal ideological inclinations were, it was virtually inevitable that Reagan would make his peace with the establishment and pursue their basic policy agenda. He may not have needed the establishment's support to win the White House, but once there, his administration did need that support to rule. Without the cooperation of the establishment-directed deep state, 
the Reagan administration would have no real grasp on the levers of power. Similarly, while Trump might be able to seize the presidency in spite of establishment opposition, he will never be able to wield it without establishment support. And since war is the health of the state, as well as the health of war profiteers, one of the power elite's non-negotiable demands is the perpetuation of the empire and its wars. So mm-hmm. he nailed it there back, you know, in, in March yeah. of, uh, of 2016, I think. And, uh, and that's exactly what we're seeing right now. We're seeing Trump coming to the realization that he will not be able to get anything done whatsoever, even on a domestic front, however reasonable, uh, without making serious concessions to the war party. Uh, because the, the, the business of, of America isn't business, as Reagan says. The business of America is war. And that's the great big trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar secret that most people don't seem to grasp. Um, Joe, you recently, uh, you recently uh, penned a focus on the subject of the Pentagon being part of this, uh, this arms to the Syrian opposition uh, connection. I mean, uh, and, and it's good to hear that this story is going uh, pretty much viral at this point. People are paying attention. Uh, there is just very little idea of how immense and powerful and entrenched uh, this, this group of people that you might call a deep state or the shadow government or whatever uh, really are. And so, you know, Trump, whatever his talent for the art of the deal, uh, he ain't come across nothing like this before. This is like, you know, he's, he's, battling, a, he's battling a million maniacs who, who right. make their, their bread and butter and their living off of uh, security contracts and, 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 uh, and, and computer programs and IT and, and surveillance technology and uh, arms and, and mercenaries. I mean, you know, the other day, Eric Prince, uh, the, the head of uh, Blackwater, formerly called Blackwater and now Lacey and Academy, whatever it is they're calling it, uh, has been kind of legitimized by Trump. He, he's been meeting with him. The New York Times legitimized him further and and allowed Eric Prince to write some kind of op-ed. Um, you know, who cares what he wrote? The idea that this guy who who's basically this the hot, you know, he's the he's the the guy people. He's a warlord. He's a warlord. He's a warlord. Uh, he hires killers, <laughs> basically, who, who get paid better than the U.S. military, who can go in and do any kind of extrajudicial killing anywhere that they're directed to by the CIA. And the guy has a, has a voice in the New York Times. So <laughs> that says it all, doesn't it? And his sister is Secretary of Education. Yes. I think I have it, that right. Well, you know. DeVos, what, what, Betsy DeVos is his sister. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. Well, so you know, it's it, it's it's a sad day, and and a lot of a lot of Trump supporters are, I think some of them are just plain disappointed. Maybe they they bought into his, um, you know, his promises, uh, in in desperation and hope that things can be turned around. Um, but you know, as you were saying earlier, Joe, they they really don't know uh, how little power um, they've 
they have this right and voting is why this is why we've been saying for years you gotta lose hope first false hope false hope hoping the wrong things basically you know you gotta lose it i remember remember our conversations where was our caller Stephen would call in Mm. and you know he's traditionally uh, would vote left Mm. and then he became disillusioned with that when the run-up of the election last year he was like i he called him one time and said, I've decided I'm voting for Trump. <laughs> and we said, okay, good luck with that. Um, now, as it turns out, you know, we we like Trump too. I mean, if you're going to have someone as a president, definitely Trump over Hillary. Um, go ahead, do it. But but do it cautiously. If you're doing it because you actually hope that he can change it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Americans have the opportunity here to learn something really yeah, I mean, it's it's been, it's been shoved in the face. This is as good as it gets, folks. You know, you're talking about secrecy, government secrecy and all that kind of stuff. And um, you don't really get the opportunity, obviously, with in terms of government secrecy. Usually it's secret, right? Usually they do their best to, to keep those kind of things from the public and try and keep the public just happy and complacent. You know, tell them nice stories, tell them nice things, keep them working, whatever. And, and you know, keep them happy relatively. But... Um, but there's a lot of stuff going on they don't want the people to know about. So, uh, and one of the things, one of the big aspects, I mean, instead of actually finding out about, you know, one piece of malfeasance or one piece of uh, d- some dirty deal the government's been been involved in, instead of that, what the Trump presidency, ha- presidency has presented to you is, is the broad scale uh, evidence or the evidence of a broad scale kind of deep state or secret government or power behind the throne that um, that that has been running things. Now, I mean, there's been plenty of, because that term deep state has come out uh, since Trump's, Trump became president, uh, there's been quite a few uh, op-eds and articles and stuff in, in particularly in the American press and the mainstream media about uh, d- dissing the idea of deep state. What's a deep state? The so-called deep state. People keep talking about a deep state. There is no deep state. I think there's a few articles actually with that title. There is no such thing as deep mm-hmm. state and stuff. So, but I mean, it's, it's like, it's so obtuse to say that because it's obvious that there is and has to be a deep state. We're not even talking about necessarily about uh, some kind of arch, you know, you know, dastardly evil group in a room, grouping, fighting, yeah, and going, ha, 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 we're going to take over the world and, and destroy everything and destroy everybody. It's, it's rather just if you think to yourself, if you think to yourself about how um, a country uh, has to be has to be run, you know, a country follows, at least in, in modern history, let's say, a country follows a particular trajectory. Uh, it, it establishes a kind of its approach to the world and then it, it de- develops a plan how it's going to act in the world and then it follows that. And especially in the case of which, uh, where you have an ideology that a lot of governments in the world seem to be in, seem to have adopted, which is that's a dog eat dog world. You know, they're basically suspicious of everybody else and it's everybody's out. It's every man for himself, you know, and um, so in that, with that perspective, you got to be out there, you know, um, applying your trade and it has to be consistent in that way, you know. So, um, and of course, it's a bit of a pathological ideology as well, where you're going to engage in all sorts of uh, underhanded tactics around the world. You're going to use blackmail and manipulation and even, you know, foment wars and all that kind of stuff to get to get yours, basically, to get your slice of the pie, if that, that's your approach to the world, you know, and the world is a kind of fairly violent, dangerous place, and human beings are a bit kind of fickle and can't rely on them, all that kind of stuff, all of that's true. There's some truth 
there's some reason to, to or I can understand why people would have developed that that at that and, perspective, yeah. but they've taken it way too far, right? Because there is an alternative to it. I mean, human beings are, are a mixed bag. They're not all one. They're all not all negative, you know. So, well, um, but, I just add point out there that while there there may not be one control room with people <laughs> laughing like this maniacally, you know, there's plenty of malfeasance going on. I mean, right, of course, the point where they have to ship arms. To yeah. create an enemy, right? To justify going in, and I mean, they know what they're doing, right? Of course, yeah, that. of course. I mean, there's all sorts of things: blackmail, manipulation, starting wars, starting proxy wars, all that kind of stuff that goes on. Now, that's 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 uh, pol- those are policies that are informed by this kind of pathological worldview, this extremist negative worldview, where you have to get yours or somebody else is going to screw you over first. Um, so, when you've established that, and that's that ideology, that perspective was established long, long time ago in the West, in particular, but in most places around the world, but particularly amongst the, the great powers, of the, you know, the strong ones, you, you gotta, you gotta hold on to what you got and get more, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, that's an attitude, a policy perspective that was established a long time ago, and it just doesn't make any sense that you would have elections. In that a country that has that ideology, where the political class has that ideology, we have elections every four years, and you have the possibility. Of course, anybody can be president, right? So in theory, anybody can come in with any idea they want, and if the people elect them, that person, to be commander in chief, then they are commander in chief with the red telephone, you know, to every agency in America saying, "Do this now," and it gets done, right? So those people, a person could come in, anybody could come in, and just have a completely different perspective on the world, uh, and be president of America, for example. And and the whole thing would be turned upside down. You'd have a radical change in direction uh, for that country. But that's only for four years. So then you have another person coming in four years later, and he has a totally different perspective of of the world and how America should should pursue its its its, its policies in the world. And then it's all turned upside down again. You know, I mean, that's a it's a it's a recipe for fecklessness. By, by that simplistic, which most people adhere to, the simplistic idea of the president of America, for example, is the commander-in-chief and makes all the decisions. And that if he wants to change something, he's, he's going to be able to do it. No, it doesn't. Obviously, that's, it's like it's no way to run a company. You can't have the CEO of a company changing every four years and it being someone who just comes in with totally different ideas about, you know what, we're not going to sell this product anymore. We're going to sell a totally different product and we're not going to sell to the people that we usually sell to. We're going to sell to a totally different... I mean, yeah. and then for four years and then four years later, if somebody, else, somebody comes in and says something totally different, it doesn't because work. his predecessors already invested in a 30-year plan. Right. There's, there's a lot of... Infrastructure is being laid down. There's a lot of... of, of worked on for decades beforehand to establish a country on its particular trajectory and it's been it was formulated fairly early on in the country's history of as to how it should act in the world you can't have someone come in and just turn that upside down on a whim so the point is that that is evidence right there it's obvious evidence for a quote-unquote deep state i.e the the president is not commander-in-chief he doesn't get to change the country or, or upend it in terms of its its um it's, 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 po- it's policies or directions, you know. Therefore, there has to be someone behind the scenes who've been there for quite a long time uh, and new ones come in who, are, who have the same understanding that they're the ones who keep the country on that trajectory, regardless of who, what president comes or goes. And therefore, also, the president is not the commander-in-chief. In fact, he only has, the, the, only, amount, the only power that a president of the U.S. has it's the power allowed to him or her 
by these people behind the scenes, a lot of them unelected officials, captains of industry, and career politicians, senators or uh, congressmen who've been there for like 20, 30, 40 years, some of them, you know. They're the people who know the score, know how it works, and they keep the country running in this direction. And a president that, uh, come, a new president that comes, comes in is, is allowed to join in the effort, right? You're the spokesperson. You stand up on the world stage. You say stuff on our behalf. You're effectively the company spokesperson. You're not the person who, you're not the decider in chief. <laughs> it's just nonsense, you know? So then, I mean, I can't see any logical flaws with that. It's, and it's not even conspiratorial. It's just rational, mundane, real world stuff. Using the analogy of a company, right? So for the, for the Western media to come out and crap their pants and go, oh, there's no such thing as deep state. How dare you say that? It's just like, what's wrong with you? Calm down, New York Times. We're not saying... I know, and Trump just by intimating that he would like to make actual decisions to change things, he's a Hitler. Yeah, it's immediately associated with right absolute power, and absolute power is right. immediately associated with being evil. Yeah, yeah, because it's like you don't because the point is you don't want to expose that truth that we've just outlined to the American public. You don't want it's not good for public public uh, health, let's say psychological health or public uh, order, let's say for. Um, the people to think that, to realize that, well, there's a whole coterie of people behind the scenes who are running this country, and a lot of them are not elected. We don't get to change them, and they decide uh, uh, what to do. It's not we, the people, who decide what to do. It's far better in, in terms of keeping a population quiet and calm to allow them to believe in the idea that they are the ones who elect the president. They are the ones who elect these Congress people who then will do their will type of thing. It, it gives people a sense of, of, of kind of participation, you know, that, you know, that, uh, that, that their interests are listened to and that there isn't going to be some kind of a totalitarian government or whatever comes to power and totally disregards what they want and does whatever the hell they want to and gets, gets consumed by power and, and, and destroys the world or destroys the country. But unfortunately, that's kind of what's happening, really, and has been happening for a long time. Mm. But you don't want people to know that. So you give them the, the comfortable lie of, yes, any president can come along. Every four years, you have an opportunity to elect the person that you think will serve your interests the best. And if you've got some issues, you just highlight them to your congressman or you vote for the president who embodies those. And the will of the people, whoever elects the major, whoever, uh, majority of the people elect, then that person will become president and he will implement all of the things that you want to the letter. And that's how it works. No, it's not how it works. Don't be silly. A few years ago, there was a study. Um, I think it went back like six or seven presidencies of all laws proposed at the federal level, no matter who it was. And they plotted it on, on, a, on a chart um, on a, with the scale being from zero to 100 of the extent to which the proposed law had had any public involvement in it. So at 100, yeah. it's everyone's everyone's on the phone calling their local senator and saying, Jesus, we have to get this changed or something. It's a panic, you know, it's a big issue in the media. All the way to zero, which is, it was just some civil servant, you know, who just came up with it, maybe roped in a senator to sign it, and voila, it was a law. So zero to 100, and they had um, a progression. 
right. uh, a, a diagonal line going up, and they plotted over that the flat line of the actual laws passed. It was dead flat. In other words, whether no one had clamoured for the law or whether everyone had clamoured for the law, the chances of it becoming a law were completely independent of the public will. Right. 100%. Of course. Well, um, on the subject, so we recently had an article that discussed uh, an analysis of the the liberal media's relentless beating up on Trump. So what they did was they looked at uh, a few hundred hours um, of airtime on the major networks, uh, ABC News, CBS Evening News, NBC Nightly News, and uh, roughly 90% of the time spent commenting on Trump was negative. Um, and, and this would include other types of media as well, online, uh, newspapers, uh, and basically, the the point of this analysis was to was to show that Trump was being punished uh, for uh, affirming a good relationship with Russia, trying to make a deal with China. Um, so the the media has become this this other weapon, this major weapon. Uh, one analyst on MSNBC actually came out and said Trump will get good coverage if he works with Democrats for for as far as the eye can see. It will produce more liberal policies, which a lot of people in the media like. Uh, and you can just replace, you know, liberal policies with uh, with warlike policies. We had um, Fareed Zakaria of CNN, this nincompoop, uh, go on the air um, uh, some months ago after uh, after Trump um, attacked the, uh, the missile base in Syria uh, after the fake allegations of, of more Assad chemical bombings and say, now Trump has become a president. Now, now it looks like yeah. a presidency, which is utterly ridiculous. But, but of course, this is exactly what they're looking for. Uh, mm. They want Trump to join the establishment pro-war party. Mm. And, um, and it seems as though, you know, uh, he, he's got no way around this. If he starts getting good press... Uh, by the media, it's because he is showing up like a war hawk. Uh, mm. And, you know, his statements in the past few weeks regarding Korea have certainly uh, encouraged a lot of neocons and other types in, into thinking that, uh, that oh, he's, you know, he's changing. He, he's thinking like us now. Um, mm. But it's uh, amazing that it's amazing that <clears throat> I mean, that was a, that, that example. I remember that. Uh, that interview, or that uh, CNN segment where the guy said, you know, it was just the people were like, the CNN anchors were wetting their pants basically at those Tomahawk Cruise missiles. One of them, what do you call it? A beautiful, uh, he said it was beautiful. The beautiful, beautiful yeah. That was an NBC the guy. Thing, NBC, the, yeah. Ryan beautiful Williams. thing. Yes. Yeah. It was just, oh, it was just made, it, it did his heart so much good to see those Tomahawk Cruise missiles flying. And this, and the other guy saying, yeah, now he's the president because he fired some weapons, you know. And that points out what you were saying earlier on, Alan, that it, it, Point out that what you're saying is, is absolutely true that America lives on war, you know, and, uh, and they've got the media. Even I mean, those guys who said that uh, in the media were just like kind of dupes, you know. They're, I'm sure they're not making much money from from war necessarily, but uh, it, it has filtered down so much. People have been so programmed with the idea that uh, I'd say a lot of American people <clears throat> actually felt the same, you know, that it felt good uh, to see America shooting off some missiles at something. 
Um, and it reminds me of, uh, it actually reminds me of uh, uh, idiocracy, you know, where you had <laughs> the, pre- the president in idiocracy was, what was his name, Dwayne Elizondo Camacho III or something, and he was standing up there in, in, in Congress behind the podium, and he's got two two M16s, and he's shooting them off in the air, you know, and everybody's cheering. I mean, that's what they want from a president, you know, fire some, <laughs> fire some, fire some cruise missiles and everything's good, you know. And that point, like I'm saying, that points directly to the fact that America lives on war and lives off war. Uh, without it, America's in big trouble, you know. And by war, that's just a simple term, but um, war means, includes the idea of being out there in the world, um, being belligerent in some way or other, either manipulating, coercing other governments uh, in order to extort extort things from them you know it's a it's a mafia operation you know and trump coming in and thinking he's going to reorganize a, a long-term established uh, mafia organization in a city for example mm-hmm. the mafia organization that rules, rules the city and you've got the, the mafia bosses behind the scenes well uh, you don't get some spokesman who comes in for the mafia and says okay now we're gonna we're gonna make things a bit more fair you know we're not gonna we're gonna break so many legs anymore we're not gonna extort so much money from those shopkeepers anymore you know uh, we're going to do things on a more equitable uh, basis. Make an offer well, he, and refuse. Well, he, he's he's going to be he's going to be the first one to go uh, in a mafia hit, you know. So, and that seems to be what has happened, you know. But yeah, so it'd be interesting to see if you know. Well, well, here's here's what I'm wondering. Like, uh, so so we have all of these uh, media outlets online, on TV, uh, in the newspapers. Uh, coming out and and demonizing Trump, and these are most of the same places that uh, were pro Hillary during the election. Uh, so you already have this percentage of people in the U.S. who know for a fact that the media they're freaking liars, and you can see it in in the comments on uh, on articles in various places. People are calling out bullshit on AP articles. Uh, on Yahoo News and the New York Times and the Washington Post, they're coming out and they're saying things plainly. So, you know, a lot of these people are realizing that that the media is part of this establishment that that's uh, that's demonizing Trump, and they're angry. They're really angry because I think that I think that a certain percentage of them, yeah, maybe some of them have lost faith in Trump, thinking that he he would or should have the power to do certain things as they voted him to do. Uh, but there's another percentage that knows, that understands uh, that he's not being allowed to do those things that he wants to do. And they get it. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what you'd call them, the the silent majority or, uh, you know, but... but um, Maybe. But who knows, you know, how these people will respond the next time... Uh, I don't know what kind of event might trigger such a thing. Um, well, hang, well, the other thing is, I, I think, I'm not sure, the other thing that occurred to me was that under Obama, had this hopey changey stuff, you know, for eight years, hopey changey, everybody was like, oh my God, a black president, he's going to just like make everything nice. I mean, people, there was a vague awareness among the general population, almost like a mass consciousness was aware of like the, the not pleasantness of the Bush years and the war and all that kind of stuff. People generally don't like war, you know, but they're, they're caught, you know, they're being propagandized all over the place uh, and mind-programmed effectively by the media to accept it. But at the same time, the, the, there was this outpouring of relief and, uh, and hopey, changey stuff with, uh, w- with Obama, you know, that a minority, I, you know, African 
black black American was going to uh, was going to change things because he's a minority, right? Because he's not part of the system, he's not part of it. Well, actually, yeah. Anybody who gets to be president, is a spokesperson, and they and they exist and they rule, they serve at the, at the pleasure of the of the deep state. Um, so that didn't happen. And I think a lot of people were disappointed. I and mean, it was a it was a coming of age in a certain sense to the extent that that can happen, where American people. Uh, realized well, Obama wasn't really, uh, didn't really change much, you know. Uh, it got but broken down a little bit, but it was particularly the lefties who were, you know, obviously supporting Obama, you know. Um, but now Trump comes along, and he the same process is being pursued with Trump. And it's almost like it's an attempt to break down, uh, psychologically break down the right now as well, you know. Where now they have been, they had their hopes get, uh, all, all pumped up over Trump. He was gonna. Restore conservative traditional American values and make America great again, and bring jobs back. And now they're they're going to realize if they haven't already is that that uh, he's been neutered, you know, he's been castrated, uh, and a lot of them can put it into words, I suppose, that you know what this means. But I think they feel it, you know, uh, and and they're being it's it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty um, sadistic uh, on the part of these people who are if if that's the if that's the plan, or but the effect is is pretty sadistic in that way, where people are just having their hope destroyed, you know, any hope, and they're being made aware vaguely in the back of their mind that there is no representation. There's nothing they can do to change anything. They have no voice. They're just going to have going to have to accept what they get, basically. And yeah, and what that could provoke, I don't well, know. For us, here's the scary thing: it it might change people for the worse. Yeah, well, um, it makes them despair. It'll depend you know? on who. Uh, I think there are kind of like types. You know, Pavlov's dogs. Mm, you right. got four yeah. basic types he found when he right the same stimulus on the four. These four he ended up describing, but he was That's testing them all with the same stimulus, and they'd have different responses. Yeah. and even the strong ones could be could broken, broken down, down yeah. and it would change their their character effectively. Yeah, but they um, all, but it made them all slave like effectively. They ultimately were slave like they are trapped. Uh, they couldn't go anywhere, and they had to. Uh, you know, it was like, you know, it's punishing people for, 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 for just for kicks. You know, and that's effectively what Pavlov was doing, where he was shocking the dogs just uh, arbitrarily in a certain sense, uh, and confusing them and uh, and breaking them down psychologically to the point that they become just they give up. They, they, they and if that's the future, then that's pretty pretty grim. But if, if you just have a whole nation or a whole world almost where people who just give up. Uh, any hope of of there being a change for the better, um, and then Imagine, yeah, you kind of create a slave nation, a slave a slave planet, effectively in a certain sense, in terms of the the, the actual creativity and the, the positivity that there might be in, in human beings. Uh, you've broken it down. You've made everybody basically depressed about the state of the world and um, and the fact that there's 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 nothing they appear to be able to do to well, to, to make it any better. A key effect from that is. Um, the reduction in child birth rates. Right. I mean, council studies now have shown that um, mothers and people in general tend to have children when their aspirations for the future are up, are positive. So after World War II, there's the baby boom because the sun right. was shining and people felt a lot more hopeful about the world. Right. Do you make things hopeless? Mm-hmm. That appears to actually already have taken effect because mm-hmm. childbirth rates in the West are plummeting. Mm-hmm. Plummeting. I mean, they're low. They're they're at less than replacement yeah, rate. Yeah, the less. Room. Yeah. That's a whole other issue with immigration and so on. But um, it, it's taken root. That effect. It's causing massive effects, unintended probably. On well, they, 
large numbers of people. There is a breakdown here because, uh, you know, you have these very high unemployment rates. They they stopped counting a certain percentage of people um, who who are unemployed in the U.S. Uh, there's a percentage of them who are on painkillers and opioids uh, just to deal with the um, the 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 kind of uh, mental pain and, and demoralization of not being able to work and be productive, um, and uh, you, you have a you have a percentage of people who are just completely demoralized in this country, mm. and and just getting yeah. back to Obama, um, I lived in a very uh, black community uh, neighborhood uh, some years back when Obama was president, and uh, the amount of pride that people showed. Um, happiness, uh, hope after Bush that this black president was now in office and, and there was someone of their own in there to look after their interests. They had pictures of him with Martin Luther King, um, you know, on their walls. And, um, you know, the, the, if, if any of these people are politically aware, uh, then it had to have been a huge blow to them to know that, you know, Obama was as bad, if not worse, than any white guy that was sitting in the presidency. Um, right. And now you have an almost similar dynamic, not in the sense that uh, Trump is a white nationalist. That's all BS. But just that, that Trump would be looking out for the working class person. So, uh, you know, I, I said before that there's a percentage of people who, who understand that he's in, not in a position to do anything right now. Um, that, that's really meaningful. Uh, but, but, uh, there's another percentage of people who, who are just kind of like, well, this is the last freaking straw. Uh, it's pretty, he, it's he, pretty, he, he, he can't do anything. Yeah, it's pretty tragic if, uh, if you think about the possibility that if Trump, you know, being well intentioned, um, was, was able or allowed to, to follow through on his, on his intention. And had the support to, let's say, bring jobs back to America in the various ways that he was going to do that, and he was, and that was largely focused on, I mean, uh, kind of, let's say, the working class, that level of, of, of jobs. Well, not just those, but certainly those jobs as well. Uh, that would have very likely benefited uh, equally, uh, if not primarily, uh, the black community. In America, because you know they tend to statistically they tend to be employed in in in, uh, in lower paid jobs. And if Trump is going to increase the number of lower paid jobs, and they were going to benefit. But you have these people out in the streets, kind of lobbying for his impeachment, demanding that on the basis of what that he's a, that that he's a racist. You know, I mean, it's just it's just it's horrible. To, it's just so I don't know. I don't know what the word is for it. Uh, it's amazing. But um, that's the power of the media, I suppose, you know? And the media has a big, has a real... Uh, it's incredibly to, powerful. A lot to answer like, for, you know? The, this, uh, this article that was made reference to earlier, um, one of the other things that was said there was that uh, traditionally the first six months of a presidency is the honeymoon period, right? So... Mm. Um, <laughs> The, the media tends to um, kind of not be so critical at the very least. Uh, but um, right off the bat, Trump was skewered 
uh, again and again, uh, even almost before, across before the board. Took place. Yeah, yeah. So they, they prepared this marching dodgy board. dossier on him, you know. I thought this dossier prepared on him in January before the actual inauguration. They had this made-up dossier by this former MI5 or current MI5 guy, MI6 guy in, in British intelligence, um, <clears throat> making up this spurious dossier, and they actually presented it, you know. And they knew they put it out there, and they said, "Well, we don't know if it's true or not," but they got leaked to the media, <clears throat> knowing that the media it would be in the media and people would take it as true, you know. And then comedians, uh, you know, <clears throat> what do you call them? Stephen Colburn, idiots like that, <clears throat> repeat it, you know, and make jokes about it, saying, "Oh, it's just we're just we're just a comedy show." Yeah, but people actually, you know, when that's based on a dossier that was alleged to possibly be true, well, you're more or less saying that that's that's the case, you know. So there's this defamation campaign waged against Trump before he even became president, and even like into last year as well, obviously. Yeah. So they these people knew from the very beginning that. I mean, you could say that Trump, once he became president, that he didn't do a good job of, you know, kind of making allies and stuff like that. But they were out for his blood before he became, before he was inaugurated. You know, so I don't yeah. think he had much chance even to make any allies. You know, because they were decided in advance that he was a, a non-starter. You know, and and if that wasn't solidified anywhere else, I mean, you 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 read his uh, his inauguration speech. Uh, I'm giving the country back to you. Time to clean the swamp. Um, I mean, these were very. He was indicting uh, all of the players standing behind him uh, on the dais. You know, mm-hmm. you had Dick Cheney, you had um, you had Bush, you had uh, Bush Senior. No, Bush Senior couldn't make it. You had Obama certainly cringing. Uh, you had Hillary and and Clinton. I mean, he was talking about all those guys. So. All those guys right. got on their on the phone with all their contacts at the New York Times, at the Washington Post, at CNN, and they said, "You go after this guy." If you know, if Melania wears high heel shoes to a hurricane, uh, you write about it, you know. Uh, and they did, and they do. Uh, so it's you know, it, it's it's a it's a sad thing. And it remains to be seen how how far Trump will allow himself to be um, manipulated yeah. into actually carrying out some kind of gruesome, uh, larger scale conflict. Mm. What is he going to do? He's surrounded well, he, by these monkeys. He he doesn't carry out. That's the thing, isn't it? He's not yeah. the commander in chief. He doesn't carry out anything. You're talking about. Reality creators here in the sense that people who create facts on the ground and then, uh, you know, CIA, etc. across mm-hmm. the world can are, are running their own operation across the world, running covert operations uh, and, and creating situations too. in other countries that then are presented to the to the president, let's say, as, uh, as well, here's a fire. What are you going to do about it? You know, well, how did that fire start? Well, they don't say that they started it, but they started it, you know. So it's, I mean, the presidents are, in a lot of respects, are that, that aren't, let's say, quite uh, inclined to follow the party line, or just led along by the nose. Can be easily led along by the nose by uh, by the fact that there is this parallel kind of uh, institution or parallel operations going on uh, by by intelligences, you know, who are acting on their own on their own plans. Well, on that note. Um, starting fires in other parts of the world. Uh, we talked about it a little bit last week, and Neil, you, you gave a uh, an introduction um, and touched upon it. Um, so we were talking about uh, Myanmar, uh, aka Burma, um, and the conflict there. 
Um, so it really does look like it's uh, it's Chechnya all over again. It's um, Afghanistan all over again. Um, the the first thing to note is how how do we all notice anything was going on there? You, me, listeners, anyone in the world. Well, simultaneously, the media, the fake news, uniformly presented the same story in late August. That's how everyone knows about, quote-unquote, the Rohingya people, the refugee crisis, Mm -hmm. the evil government of Myanmar. And that right there, I mean, that's that's the same structure that has Trump neutered. Can whip this up, and I don't. It's it's a com. I mean, it's a, it's a combination of orders sent to editors, or simply something is beamed out there. It's instinctively picked up. Everyone knows what the story is. Everyone knows where the sympathies must lie, and what the slant on the story is. Right. <laughs> it's incredible. It's, isn't it incredible? It just pops out of nowhere. Well, I mean, you may have noticed that the the public opinion is very easy. To, uh, to 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 generate to create it's very easy to create public opinion, uh, particularly in terms of uh, humanitarian crises. It's very mm-hmm. easy to leverage public opinion um, mm-hmm. to, to to support or yeah. uh, be aware of a quote unquote humanitarian crisis. If if that um, I mean, there are humanitarian crises crises obviously of one type or one scale of another going on. And have been going on for for a long time, but uh, if if there's nothing, if there's no geopolitical benefit or interest on the part of of the Western powers, Western governments, uh, then the media doesn't say anything about it, and a humanitarian crisis can unfold and end and change, and Western populations have no clue whatsoever. But if a particular group of people uh, are decided, it's decided that these people need to be leveraged. Uh, these this uh, a group of beleaguered people, let's say, uh, who are actually suffering in some way or other, need to be uh, pumped up and presented to the population in the West as, oh my goodness, these poor people. Well, then just, you know, activate the media and off it goes. And everybody then is like, apparently, like everybody's sending their money. Everybody's sending money and protesting in the streets or whatever, or, or within, aware of it within at the very least. three days, the streets of Moscow are filled with protesters. Mm. Um largely of Chechen origin, Chechen Russians mm. are threatening to set the Myanmar embassy in downtown Moscow on fire. Right. And they have a crowd control issue within days of a Western media starting this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't, they would not have made the connection uh, that the leader of Chechnya comes out, same kind of thing. He's, mm. oh, this is terrible what's being done to our fellow. We must stand up for our fellow. He himself has been taken in by it. It's not, he's not complicit with it. Mm. He's fallen for it. Yep. This is a guy who knows very well how the West works on these things. Yeah. He was duped. I, I don't know whether he's duped or whether those people in, in Muslim countries are just pandering to the population, you know, Maybe. where uh, because of the globalization of uh, information, basically now we're, you know, instant communication and people can be aware and pretty much everywhere in the world uh, of, of what's going on. Uh, if he's simply responding, if those pe- leaders in Muslim countries are responding to the influence of the Western media, particularly on social media, uh, to the uh, the Western media's hype, Western media's hyping of the of the plight of these poor Muslim quote unquote Rohingya in Myanmar, uh, 
that the pop, a lot of the population in, the, in those Muslim countries have become aware of that in that way, and therefore they need to, the leaders need to kind of step up and say, yes, you know, this is very bad. Um, but the impression I get, like Iran has done that, you know, um, as you said, the Chechen leader has has done that as well, and a few other Muslim countries have spoken out against it, against the, about the plight of the Muslim people and against the Myanmar government. Um, but that's more or less all they've done. I don't see any of them uh, rushing in to, you know, do whatever, if even if they're able to, you know, I don't know, impose some kind of sanctions on Myanmar. I don't see any of them taking any action on that. So tend, I tend to think that it's basically for public consumption what those people are saying. It's, it's they're, they're looking to their own interests within the country in terms of we can't, you know, it, it'll basically increase our... Uh, our stock among the people that we are re- representing their yeah. brother and sister Muslims in this in this country, you know. But that's that's all we're going to do. We're not taking any action, you know. So, um, yeah. Let's just remind ourselves how it began. I mean, this is even in the mainstream narrative. Um, uh, the story begins this year on August twenty fifth, when. This is BBC terminology for it. Here I'm quoting Rohingya militants attacked 30 police posts mm-hmm. in northern Rakhine province in Burma. So it was a coordinated attack against the Burmese security forces that sparked this. Right. Yeah, there's parallels with uh, with Syria, I suppose, because if you think back to 2011 and the initiation of uh, a Syrian quote-unquote civil war, you had... Uh, Strange, you know, unknown uh, armed people, people with weapons, uh, shooting police policemen uh, down in uh, southern Syria near the border with Jordan. That's in Dara, I think the name of the town is. That is officially the place where it kind of kicked off back in 2011, and it kicked off with with attacks on police, uh, but also people, the same people, kind of injuring and shooting civilians, you know, um, and then it spiraled from there with an influx of 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 more rebels quote unquote into Syria and you know the rest of the story. So there's parallels there definitely it seems. I mean anybody who knows that history in Syria and in other countries knows also that um should be suspicious of, of this situation in in Myanmar when you have um these kind of attacks on police and then particularly the Western media being all over it condemning the Myanmar authorities for being too brutal in their response and highlighting the the poor the poor people the poor Rohingya people you know um, yeah it's, it's apparently a population of one point one million mm. ethnic Bangladeshi Muslims who live <clears throat> just inside the border of Burma slash Myanmar yeah in Rakhine State yeah. um. And the latest figure is that 123,000 of them have fled back over that border mm. to Bangladesh. We should, I mean, people should, we probably need to look at a map for this. It'd be good to have a map open of, of the area to, to see, you know, what's going on or check a map if you're ever considering this uh, this situation or, or trying to figure it out. I mean, these Rohingya, Rohingya, there aren't, there's this term Rohingya people going around and uh, there's no such thing as the Rohingya people. Rohingya, the term Rohingya was actually adopted by, and this isn't a new phenomenon. That's the other thing is that the media is all over this now, 
But this kind of a situation where you had Myanmar authorities um, kind of uh, being attacked and having to respond to um, uh, insurgent, an insurgency, a uh, Muslim insurgency, essentially, goes back to just after the Second World War, actually, uh, when, when the British Empire kind of ceded what is now uh, India and, pa- and uh, Bangladesh and Pakistan and Myanmar to you know, let them go, basically, and they became independent countries. Uh, at that time, you had various independence movements and stuff. But the British also were very had a lot of responsibility at that time in terms of moving people around the Indian subcontinent in terms of uh, for for workforces. You know, they shifted populations around and caused all sorts of problems with uh, with the stability, the ethnic and religious stability of of the region. You know, so. Uh, but also in 1970s, there was a similar kind of insurgency where you had these. Uh, uh, so-called Rohingya people, but it was 1948 or 1950 or so that uh, these these what were effectively Bangladeshi or um, Bengali in that area uh, uh, guerrilla fighters started to call themselves Rohingya from some name way back in history, basically. So they're not they're they're Bangladeshi, they're Bengali, they're from that part. Of, they're they're not from Myanmar. They're from I mean, go, you go way back, and sure, there was movements of people around, but the bottom line is that those borders were established in about 1950, and then in terms of uh, Bangladesh, 1972, or so 70, in the 1970s, uh, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Myanmar were all, and other countries in Southeast Asia were all, the borders were all established in relatively recent history, you know? Yeah. So the point is, you can't now go and say, 400 years ago, my people live in this land, yeah. and I, I want independence for it. Right, I mean that's my I mean, says so. Well, right. they don't say that, but yeah, right, exactly. It's a similar, similar idea, you know. So uh, the fact that the, the West is supporting this is um, ser- seriously, like obviously hypocritical, you know. I mean, no other country in 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 the West would would respond any differently uh, to the Myanmar authorities to the same thing happening in their countries, you know. Certainly, the British uh, uh, didn't do it. The you know. The, the, the Americans, well, they've never really had the experience, but other, no other country in the world would ever, has ever or would ever uh, respond any differently to an armed insurrection from effectively uh, immigrants, illegal immigrants from another country coming into your country and saying, I want to take this part of your country and I'm going to keep it. Um, and we're going, I want to, independence. we're going to start the process <clears throat> by torching 30 of your police stations right. and cutting their heads off. Right. And, right. and that's not to say that, you know, the, the people in... The, these people who are in the spotlight called Rohingya, who are really just from Bangladesh and uh, and Pakistan, whatever, um, that they're not, that they don't, uh, they don't suffer. Uh, but they're basically illegal immigrants. A lot of them came from Bangladesh because fleeing kind of conflict in Bangladesh or poverty in Bangladesh. They came into Myanmar over the past twenty or thirty, uh, thirty or forty years, um, and. Um, they sought and, refuge. Well, and they, they sought refuge. They there. gained it. They gained refuge, but then they they started to rabble rouse a bit. And there's amongst them there are there are extremist Muslims who want you know their own kind of to practice their own extremist form of kind of like the Sharia law kind of situation yeah. in, in Western Europe. Uh, but the problem the thing they, you have to remember, they want to create a country called Arkhan, which is kind of Rakhine but, state plus. I don't even want. I don't even know if they want to create a country called Arkhan. That's an old term from way back when. They okay. could call it whatever they want, but they, they claim some kind of independence of, of part of Myanmar on the Bay of Bengal there on the coast. And the point there, you have to remember about Myanmar is that Myanmar is about you know 80, 90% Buddhist East Asian. Right? Or, the popul- oriental looking. They're oriental looking 
people, 90% of the population are Buddhist and Oriental looking. These Rohingya are uh, Indian looking and Muslim. Mm-hmm. I.e., there's that line. If you look at just the map between Myanmar and, and Bangladesh or, or, or India, they're uh, at the bay I mean, of that's, Bengal. Yeah, yeah that's, the, that's a dividing line, kind of almost, a, or it just so happened that way. But you have a dividing line there between uh, Indian people of, of that racial type uh, and Asian people. And the obvious distinct different characteristics they have, right? I mean, I hope it's nobody's going to get triggered by me saying that you know Indian people have kind of chocolatey brown skin, and Asian people uh, aren't so chocolatey brown and have uh, distinctive uh, eye features, right? Is that okay? That's okay. Okay, <laughs> you were able to do that. Okay, so that's the line there along the basically Myanmar and Bangladesh and India border, you know. And obviously, you know. <laughs> People can live together, sure, but in conditions of poverty and um, uh, and 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 particularly in, in the modern day with the extremist kind of Muslim uh, ideologies uh, kind of being spread almost deliberately by, for example, Saudi Arabia and stuff. Well, you're not they're not very good conditions for cohabitation, you know, where you and you can very easily find one people reacting against the the attitudes of, of another. You know, the bottom line is Myanmar. Ninety percent of the population are Asian uh, Buddhists, and you have Bangladeshis basically in that part of the country who, you know, well, you know, if the UN and the West and Britain and the US are so concerned about these as their media apparently are, you know, those one million Rohingya, so-called Rohingya, they can all go to America. You can all go to the UK. You can go to France. These are basically Bangladeshis. The Brits own this part of the world and messed it up massively. You know, oh, set, set up to 60, 70 years ago, right? So, and there's a big population of Pakistanis and Indians and Bangladeshis in the UK because mm. of the British Empire. So, those are every one of them should be should be taken should be you know, uh, refugeed straight into Middle London or wherever they can put them. If you're so concerned about them, you know. Um, so and just just to add another historical tidbit to this what's called Bangladesh today if you look at your map you've got India in the center okay off to your northwest you've got Pakistan and Afghanistan beyond that well Pakistan is on the left side of India as you look at it and Bangladesh is on the right side okay when that was created in 1947 Pakistan and Bangladesh were the same country they were both Pakistan Literally, I'm split by a yeah. thousand miles of India in the middle, and that was the same people. So yeah. Bangladesh is only a more recent. You see how messed up that is, just to start with. Yeah, well, Bangladesh, Bangladesh, modern-day Bangladesh was East Pakistan, and you had India, the expanse of India to the, to the west, and then the other side you had what is the rest of Pakistan, and East Pakistan. So West Pakistan is modern-day Pakistan. East Pakistan uh, was. It's modern-day Bangladesh, and Bangladesh got independence from Pakistan in 1972, I think. Independence uh, in quotes, though, right? Because yeah, it sort of became little brother. Well, it's a tiny little country. It's not going to have much independence between India and Pakistan. There, you know, it's not really going to have much independence. But um, the, there was an independence movement that was, you know, was fought against by by the Americans uh, under um, under Nixon and with Kissinger at the helm. They didn't want. That little country, uh, that little part of uh, of Pakistan, to be independent, and they actually the, the the Americans were involved. The CIA was involved in several coups during the 1970s, from 1973 or four on. For five or six years, there was a series of coups that the the CIA were up to their neck in, basically 
and a lot of killing, a lot of massacres and all sorts of stuff going on uh, that actually caused, uh, you know, people to flee that point, Bangladesh, at that point into, right. into Myanmar. So, I mean, the, the CIA basically has direct responsibility for, uh, at least in part, for um, has partial responsibility for the, the fact that there are people, uh, Bangladeshis, in Myanmar uh, today. So... Well, it, it's an interesting thing. The, the guy who's heading this uh, Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, or ARSA, is led by a guy, um, his name is Atala Abu Amar Junjuni. And mm-hmm. uh, he's from Pakistan. And um, he was born into a Rohingya community in uh, Karachi, Pakistan, mm. and but was educated in Saudi Arabia. Right. Got his training in, uh, his military training in Pakistan. Um, his religious training uh, with a Wahhabi imam in Saudi Arabia before he came right. to, to Myanmar. So right. this is the guy who's responsible for um, for uh, steering up the kind of rustling everybody up, getting uh, getting a guerrilla army together. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's been you know, uh, and this is a pattern we see quite often. You get this charismatic. Educated, uh, crazy, uh, Wahhabi-trained uh, uh, guy, uh, militant to mm. to uh, to plan the uh, the people's worst instincts. Right. Uh, and the interesting the interesting thing about him also is that prior to this this last year, when they started attacking the Myanmar uh, police stations, uh, that guy had never set foot in Myanmar or in this so-called disputed part of Myanmar where the Rohingya are. They've never actually been there. So so basically they just plant him there. Um, right. You know, the Syrian war is winding down. Uh, uh-huh. They're like, uh, we, we need a new territory uh, where we can work to secure resources. Uh, well, Afghanistan. And, uh, and this is our man. Afghanistan is the gift that keeps on giving. Sending weapons and Saudi madrasas there from 1979 to the 80s to counter the Soviets in Afghanistan mm-hmm. is still paying right. off because from Pakistan, you get the military and ethnic connections with what's now Bangladesh. Right. And then those same channels today in their current form are being used to arm and train these militants yeah. over in Burma. So right. it's a little even further east. And these groups, this guy that you mentioned uh, that's leading this Rohingya kind of movement, uh, liberation movement, so-called, um, the the group that he's a part of, and there are other groups involved, jihadi, militant, Islamic kind of groups. Uh, they've been around for quite a long time, but going back to the seventies, and they were actually the ones that they were uh, when Bangladesh was trying to was had a war for liberation against, you know, uh, <clears throat> to to free itself from from Pakistan. Um, in the seventies, they these militant groups were actually fighting against the independence movement. You know, so they were on the part of. Of, of the Pakistanis, who at that point in the 1970s were very much in bed with the Brits uh, and uh, and the Americans, uh, and Kissinger was there on the scene as well, you know. So, you know, and of course later in the 70s you had uh, Brzezinski in Afghanistan, you know, stirring up a bunch of Muslims to be jihadis to fight against the Russians. So, I mean, there's loads and loads of evidence in the broad strokes to 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 to, to see that that uh, this jihadist. Anytime you see jihadist militant. Um, you know, Islamic uh, insurgency in some part of the world, you know, stirring up uh, problems and, and fighting against the state authorities. 
uh, there's a big history there of of American and Western uh, involvement with those people, very often via Saudi Arabia, for example, using Saudi Arabia as the as the as the middleman for, as you mentioned, the land. This guy was uh, was uh, grew up in, in Saudi Arabia and went to religious school there and all that kind of stuff. And there's been a lot of allegations that you know Saudis are 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 sending weapons uh, to these people. You know, so it's it's uh, now the yeah. Bangladeshi government. You would think in the narrative that they, you know, they are they're the kin of these so-called Rohingya, right? And they'd be happy to take them back. They're our people. No, the Bangladeshi government wants to stop them coming over the border mm. and is doing so. But it's particularly concerned with, because it knows damn well there are militants, because mm-hmm. those militants were often trained within their own border and camps. Right. So they want to stop them from coming back and mixing and disappearing right. in the general population. Right, because Bangladesh is a small country and it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't take so, so much effort to... They're being driven out from the east, from Burma, they're not allowed back to Bangladesh. Where they're going is onto boats. Right. And they have been for a while. Down to yeah. Malaysia. But that's the real actual Indonesia. Yeah, refugees, yeah. The real people who really don't know where to go and don't, right. don't know what to do. You know, so there is a truth to the fact that there are a lot of people who are being having a very hard time and have been for a while here. But, I mean, it's just the fecklessness of the, of, of the governments in the, who really should take responsibility for it, uh, for, for these people have not been doing so. And someone now is kind of using them as uh, for geopolitical kind of uh, in service to a geopolitical agenda. And of course, there's another thing to uh, again broadening it out a little bit. Uh, you know, China uh, in one of our pictures on the on the show slideshow, there's uh, a picture of um, a map of of ma- uh, two pipelines that are going through um, go through Myanmar into China, and it's. This is the way these pipelines were established a few years ago, and a port, and those ports are, um, and those offshore oil fields are um, in this disputed kind of uh, Rakhine state on on that coast. You know, so there's a threat there uh, that um, that this chunk of Myanmar could, you know, blow up into a, a civil war, some kind of insurgency, and then there would be some pressure put on uh, the Myanmar authorities to to give it some kind of independence, autonomous um, status under Muslim control. Uh, and then, you know, if that's brokered by, by the West, then that becomes under the under the influence of Western powers. And you've got two, uh, a gas and oil pipeline. And China has further uh, plans to, to develop that part of, of, of Myanmar. Um, and those two, those two pipelines that it has established are, were, were implemented by China as a way to avoid um, having to go through the Malacca Straits uh, to ship its uh, oil from the Middle East. So China is always looking to diversify its, its its kind of energy supplies for its energy needs uh, because of threats to um, threats from the West, effectively. And of course, a couple of years ago, I think it was American and Pacific Fleet and the Australian uh, Navy held kind of a exercises that simulated the blockading by them of these Malacca Straits through which something like 70% of the world's shipping traffic goes through, including uh, a lot of China's oil uh, gets shipped through that those straits. And the Americans decided to simulate blockading them. And the Chinese kind of went, okay, uh, you know, get the message. So let's, let's just, there's some gas uh, offshore Myanmar, which is right next door to us. 
and we can get our oil from the Middle East directly by boat to the coast of Myanmar and then we build a pipeline and we'll pump it into the pipeline and it'll go directly into China through Myanmar. Uh, so it's, uh, it all can be placed in the context of this kind of uh, great game that is still being played where uh, the West, particularly America, is trying to uh, cut China off, uh, cut its expansion and its, its development uh, with and into other Eurasian nations expanding west. It's uh, the way America is really uh, definitely attempting to to stymie that and, and to thwart Chinese expansion in that in that respect. And they're trying to play the Indians and the Japanese off against them and stuff. It's a whole complicated game going on there. But I think the bottom line: the wind is definitely not blowing in America's direction in that respect because China's just China's just going to keep going. You know, China just oh, you close that door, I'll open this one. Oh, you close that door, well, I'll open this one then. And, you know, China just uh, yeah. diversifies and has a lot of options to diversify. And I don't think, it's kind of like I was saying to you the other day, it's kind of like um, the Americans are really trying to have to play whack-a-mole uh, with China and Russia, you know, and China and Russia and the league with Iran and, and Syria and Turkey now and, um, and Pakistan. Uh, they're just, they're popping up all over the place, you know, in terms of projects and building railways and power plants and dams and, and ports and, and ports and, and, and getting oil and gas and exploring for oil and gas in different places in Africa, everywhere. And the Americans are just like running out of energy, basically trying to, trying to, trying to whack it all down, you know. They bought Greece's largest port, by the way. That was one of the privatizations that was actually sound for Greece yeah. back then. Um, so yeah, all the way to Europe. Mm. Um, even our local airport, apparently, is Chinese owned now. 51%, yeah. Um, yeah, whack-a-mole. I, I, in the long run, how it's it's a loser's game. That's what I was thinking about when we were discussing this earlier, that it's kind of like the the, the tale of the the hare and the tortoise in the race, you know, who's going to win? And it's funny that over the long term, this containment of China can't work. It seems, but unfortunately, it's, it's not so clear cut because you see how easy it is to destroy something. Mm-hmm. And how long it takes to build something. Mm. Now, the Chinese can build gas pipelines. This oil and gas pipeline from China through Burma have been built or been mm-hmm. built? They've yeah, been they've built. Been, they've that, been can built. Take, that can take a couple of years. They can do that very quickly. Because yeah. they can That's throw tons of people and money at it. But unfortunately, it's also so easy to create a situation to bring pressure to bear to destroy things. Mm-hmm. And in a cauldron like that, where you've got a kind of a mini east east meets west of two sort of sub-civilizations with the Indian mm-hmm. one, which has its own fracture point, namely Hindu, Muslim, Muslim yeah. meeting with the Southeast Asian mm-hmm. Orientals. I mean, that, and it's the most densely populated area of the world. Yeah. You yeah, could cause a firestorm. Absolutely. There. And I, I think, I mean, this, it's not limited to, to Myanmar. You know, there's stuff going on in, in Thailand and Vietnam and Indonesia as well with this, with basically this Muslim uh, local yeah. uh, religion uh, d- divide, you know, and it's all being fueled by, well, I mean, you track it back to America's war on terror, war on Muslim terror mm-hmm. brackets, you know, uh, that's really, I mean, you can't, dis- you can't disassociate the two. Right. I mean, you can't say... Maybe you can't say, well, obviously, you know, they intended this or planned this, but definitely this is a result. I mean, it, it didn't happen. Well, it didn't happen beforehand. It wasn't the case beforehand, and now it is. 
And the, and the, the, the thing that changed was America, was 9-11 and America going to war against Muslims everywhere. Alleg- apparently, well, supposedly terrorists, but, well, Muslim terrorists, where would they be? They'd probably be in Muslim countries, right? Uh, and everything they've done and how they've actually turned a lot of the Muslims, obviously, justifiably against America. And then legitimately or uh, in a contrived way created a lot of these uh, extremist right-wing Muslim groups who are just, you know, angry about the whole thing, you know. And then there's a bunch of false ones who are being paid by the West. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that really could uh, cause serious problems. It I mean, could explode. Look at, it, yeah. look at the religious demographics, religious breakdown across yeah. across uh, across Asia, Southeast Asia. It's yeah, it's probably yeah, the only one that's really relatively immune to that, I think, is uh, is China. But the point isn't necessarily to attack China. It's to keep China within China's borders. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they have a lot of scope to light fires around the place uh, because of that religious divide and everything they've done since 9-11. This hasn't exploded yet. Okay. No, but it's but, built, built but that, steam. There's that, a, there's a, there's that a, thing in the media, there's a, that, there's a flavor to it. It reminds me of the build-up to Libya. Yeah. It makes um, my stomach just go, oh, God, here we go. That's why we're getting in at the beginning now because, you know, I mean, you learn from these lessons, right? You look at, the, you know, I mean, the humanitarian crisis business has been used repeatedly and we've seen the results of it. So at what point do you go, uh, oh, no, no humanitarian, no, I'm not taking the humanitarian crisis bait this time. I'm sorry, because I've been burned too many times previously, you know, as much as you might try and tug at our heartstrings and, and say these poor people, I, I've seen the results pr- previously. I mean, I mean, you go back to 1981 and in, in, in Kuwait and incubators and uh, babies and incubators, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that was a par, par excellence, a, a tugging of the heartstrings, you know, and it was, that was a, a humanitarian crisis, really, you know. I mean, it was the, the poor Kuwaiti civilians were being terrorized to the point of having babies thrown out of incubators. But, oh, it was made up. It didn't actually happen. Well, that was one. Then you had, uh, obviously, you had, uh, well, you have, you had mass destruction. Well, even before that, Yugoslavia, you, mm-hmm. know, you had Yugoslavia. The Tre- Trebonisa. Yugoslavia was, was based on the idea of, of, of a poor population being being uh, in, in Yugoslavia being being terrorized by by the authorities and in you go bombing crap bomb the crap out of the place and it's it's not good you know uh, then you had yeah the general kind of general humanitarian uh, line of BS which is you know um, which is more recently in the past ten or fifteen years boiled down to uh, some. Uh, leader of some country is now a dictator bombing his own people. Well, that's a humanitarian crisis, humanitarianism, right? You can't have ordinary people being bombed by their own by their own government. That's horrible. We need to get in there. Uh, they, they blow the crap out of um, Iraq on that basis, although that was more of a sexed up, dodgy dossier. Iraq's going to kill us all. It wasn't so much about the poor Iraqi people. It was more about how evil Saddam was going to obliterate uh, the United Kingdom and all of the West in 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the line at the time, and then you saw 1.5 million people dead in Iraq and the country in ruins. Then you have Libya uh, bombing his own people, uh, destroys Libya. Libya is still destroyed today, and you have mass influx of immigrants into into Europe as a result of Libya. And then you have Syria, uh, that was a humanitarian killing his own people and poor people lobbying, you know, rallying for democracy. Well, they want some of your wonderful freedom fries and freedom and democracy. Won't you help them? Uh, and then you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead. But with the thanks of Russia, with, the, with thanks to Russia, uh, that was cut off before it, before it got too bad. Um, but yeah, so seeing this in 
I mean, after having watched all of those, how can you blame anybody for going, for calling, <laughs> for being cautious, let's say, uh, and, and saying, hmm, I'm not quite convinced because of your long track record of bullshitting the entire world. Mm. So that warrants looking into it. And then when you start looking into it, you find that it's much more nuanced. And, you know, this woman, Aung, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the darling of the West because she was going to, you know, she was lobbying for the uh, the removal of the of the military dictatorship in, in Burma. And now she's evil incarnate. Because she won't <laughs> condemn the atrocities. Yeah. Which she, she has get done. on the humanitarian bandwagon. She has done, but she's also said that the whole situation is being distorted by a, quote, huge iceberg of misinformation. She said tensions were being fanned by fake news promoting the interests of terrorists. Of course, that's not going to be repeated too loudly, but yeah, she's not condemning the atrocities and defending the Rohingya people. Therefore, she's not our darling anymore. She turned and it's sort of left hanging in the air then well, somebody's going to go in there and do something then. We can't rely on her. Yeah. Who's going to do something? Uh, I imagine it's the the playbook would be like Syria, an increase of influx of um, militants of weapons. Yeah. It would be covert initially. Then they do a flip like Obama in 2012 saying, I just had a great idea. Let's send weapons to these rebels. Hmm. That, you mean what's already been done for four years by CIA? Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to tell where it's going to go because it is slightly different and it's their kind of first major foray into into Asia with this Muslim Muslim terrorism, not Muslim terrorism, but, you know, a Muslim a rebels, let's say, you know, and poor beleaguered Muslim people. Uh, but the problem is here is that you know it's right on. Myanmar is very important for China, mm-hmm. um, in terms of its its plans and its initiatives to expand out into and, and diversify its energy supplies and also expand out into expand westwards from China. Uh, so China is not so stupid, obviously, and uh, I don't think China would allow um, that kind of thing. To, to get very far, certainly not to. I mean, as of now, it's not it's not hasn't expanded down far enough in the state to to threaten their their pipelines, but it could. And so it's saying, saying, well, you know, sort it out, but you know, sort it out quickly type thing because uh, they're not obviously they wouldn't be willing to allow uh, their strategic strategic interests in terms of their oil and gas pipelines to be influenced by this uh, by some jumped up bunch of uh, Bangladeshi rebels clamoring for uh, a chunk of Myanmar that includes a place where China has oil and gas pipelines uh, and using uh, Rohingya people who are really uh, uh, claiming that they are from this area when they're not, basically. They're from... It's just that whole thing's ridiculous. There are borders of countries and you need to respect them. That's the bottom line. Mm. And the big problem here is that uh, when you introduce the idea of Maybe those borders aren't the way they should be. Well, then you're, you know, they're opening a whole can of worms right, because right. everyone will have their view of it. Yeah. Um, well, Ch- China, China knows the program well. I mean, it it hasn't been a an active party to the uh, to the Syrian war, but it it has, I think, at some points, uh, placed parts of its navy, if I'm not mistaken, uh, off the shores of Syria. It has um, uh, offered support. 
um, and it seems to be a kind of quiet partner uh, with Russia and Iran in, in supporting Syria. So um, I think that they, they do know the score uh, in uh, Myanmar and are, you know, like you said, they're kind of just biding their time, hoping that the situation kind of uh, resolves itself in a way that, that, um, that wouldn't compel them to get involved directly. Um, well, we we will see. We will see. China is built is has rebuilt its army, a la Russia. Mm-hmm. They they massively cut down its numbers, and then totally retooled it. And then they've been training it for overseas emergency response Recently. situations, i.e., terrorism, this exact kind of thing, mm-hmm. militancy. They've just stationed this summer their first troops mostly Navy, have been sent to their newly opened base in Djibouti right next to the American and French bases. And Japanese, I think there are now four bases in that tiny country at the Horn of Africa. That's a statement of intent. They know what it, the, the, the deal is. You, you get a base at the Horn of Africa. That's your first one. Another key one is somewhere along the Indian Ocean. And this kind of thing, they might see it in a similar way to how the Americans see it. How can we use the situation to help it and not spread it chaos further, sure, but also as a means to get a foothold. Because look at the effect of Russia in Syria. It's just gained a 99-year lease to have a permanent Russian military, well, a Navy base, but more than that, an airfield too, in Syria Mm. for the next century. I'm not suggesting that was their goal all along, but it's a nice little kickback, Mm. you know? long-term strategic interest. China could well be seeing it like this too, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a new reality on the ground in the Middle East, really. I mean, despite what the U.S. might try to do with uh, the Kurdish state and all that kind of stuff, it's just not going anywhere. And Russia really is now, you know, unofficially, but in, in reality, in a very practical way, Russia is the main power broker in the Middle East. You know, pretty much in all of the Middle East. That's how quickly it's happened. I mean, nothing really happens, nothing will happen in the Middle East without Russia say so. I mean, Turkey won't do anything against the Kurds without uh, without Russian and Iran, and Iranian agreement. Uh, I mean, America has already been pushed out uh, of the Middle East, I think, mm. um, in terms of its influence. Sure. I mean, even Israel is you know, flying up to Moscow, the Netanyahu. Three times a year ask, now. Asking for things and, and checking things and stuff. Sure, they may try and concoct something or whatever. I mean, the only thing they can do at this point is have a, a, a bigger large-scale war or something, you know? And we have the Israelis kind of go to war against Iran or something or go to war against Syria or something like that to stop Iran coming in. But it's all just, there's well, so much blowhard talking right at this point, just trying to cover up the fact that uh, the, the, the situation in the Middle East has, has radically changed. And there's just, there's the, there's the, the, the facts on the ground simply have to be put into place. But it's already a done deal in that respect. You know? Short of conventional war between any of these big actors, a horrible possibility is the continued eruption of these low-intensity conflicts. Well, that's what they'll fall back because on. Because remember, there's another zone of conflict that opened up this year. Apparently out of nowhere, but no, it has its own history. North Korea. No, that, that too, that too, but that one doesn't fall under this, this kind of remit, the Philippines. Yeah. Marawi is still overrun with ISIS-affiliated yeah. terrorists. Yeah. 
in, in on the southern island of Mindanao, and uh, they haven't. They they thought they were they gloated that they would clear it up in weeks. It's now four months. Yeah, May. It's not over yet. No, they're, they're, there's a lot they can do in that respect, you know. But um, and and they try to bait. What they're really trying to do is bait the uh, major powers into into those conflicts. Yeah. You know, that's that's their their trump card really is to is to um, break up the the burgeoning relationships that are forming across the Eurasian continent. Right, light fire, like get India against China. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of lighting fires and uh, sending weapons into you know uh, or, or sending fighters into an area and just your you know their remit is or their mission is just you know. Wreck the place. Slaughter a bunch of people. Wreck the place and create a, and create a serious problem. And then maybe eventually ask for independence or demand independence or just keep it going, you know. I mean, that's the thing. You don't, These people don't really have, that's why I keep using the term light of fire. They don't really have an agenda. Uh, the people like in the West, the CIA and MI6 and the Saudis and stuff who, who fund these radical jihadis to go and just, make outrageous claims in certain countries and start shooting a bunch of people and carry out bombings and stuff. There isn't an end result, necessarily an end result agenda for that. They don't actually want anything. They just want to sow chaos and discord in that area for the benefit of their geopolitical enemies, you know, or to the, to the detriment of their geopolitical enemies. Just light fires around the place, you know, and say, well, that'll keep you occupied for a while, you know. <laughs> Pretty pathetic strategy, but it does cause a lot of problems, you know. So the American Empire, the Western Empire, is an agent, an arch agent of chaos. Yeah, it's you know what it actually is. It's kind of like it's. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the old there's the analogy, the cliche of you know of the person saying, "Well, if I can't have it, no one can." Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of what this strategy is. It's a, it's that's America's uh, foreign policy as moving more and more towards, it's always been an element of it, but uh, it's going to increase as American as American power and influence wanes in the world and uh, and, and Russian and China and Middle Eastern, you know, Iran and other countries uh, rise, then the American foreign policy will increasingly, uh, will become more and more uh, involved with, uh, I'm not going to let you have it. Destructive. I'm not going to say, okay, fair fight, I lost, I'll go back home. It's, I'm going to torch the place <clears throat> before I leave. And I'll die trying. Right. <clears throat> Maybe. Um, a little bit of good news before we wrap it up for this week. In Syria, the Syrian army have reached the Euphrates River at Deir Azor, and they're in the process of efficiently taking back the city district by district in total contrast with the obliteration of Raqqa, which continues, um, it's been such a it's been such an impressive operation. The Russians airlifted in twenty teams of Western journalists, including a CNN crew, who had not a single bad thing to say about it. They were so impressed by it, they concluded that after three years under siege, the people in this hot and dusty town appear simply happy to have access to basic goods and be free from worry about ISIS invading their home. That's from CNN. So, yeah, a silver lining for Syria anyway. Okay, folks, we're going to wrap up for this week. A discussion of Myanmar and the end of the Trump revolution. 
in quotes. Trump is still there, of course. He'll be here for some years to come, giving us some more laughs, we hope. Yeah, some more lols. Some more and, lols. And lots of, uh, lots of opportunity for... Uh, Good entertaining uh, tweets. Yeah, and, and for virtue signaling on many people on the left by using him to, you know, to highlight how how uh, anti-racist and anti-sexist and a supporter of all things, anything, they are. That's perfect. I mean, if you, if you want a virtue signal, you need somebody. You need, you need a foil. Well, you need somebody, yeah, exactly. You need somebody to... Uh, to, to contrast it with, you know. So he's he's going to be very useful from that point of view. Uh, but yeah, we'll see. Who knows? So we'll leave it there. Yeah, this week. Thanks for listening, guys, and hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week with another show. Um, until then, Alan's going to play our jingle and take us out. Let's find the jingle. Bit quicker than that. Take care, everybody. There we go. See you next week, everyone. Bye bye. Push the button, Alan. Which one? The mic's the screen. The end show. Mm-hmm. Three times. <laughs>